Welcome to the Navigating Disruption Podcast. I'm your host, Shaquille Barmel. I'm the CEO of Ocean Blue Strategic and partner with The Summit Group. I'm a coach, consultant, and speaker, and I help leaders, entrepreneurs, and sales professionals make an impact through improved performance. In this podcast, I share insights and interviews with interesting leaders to define practical lessons that you can use to make an impact in the face of uncertainty. We are proud to be brought to you by The Summit Group. We help companies increase revenue and deepen customer relationships by moving from sales excellence to authentic business relevance through engaging learning experiences. Nature, creativity, self-reflection, faith. They are all powerful levers, some would say necessary levers for leadership in this time. In this conversation, I speak to Dr. Hafiz Jamal, environmental scientist, musician, poet, physician, and emergency medicine leader. We explore the connection of these diverse fields and talk about how leaders can find their own way to draw from nature, creativity, self-reflection, and faith to develop their leadership. This episode is particularly special because Hafiz is also the composer and performer of the theme music of the Navigating Disruption podcast. Listen in to hear from the man behind the music. Enjoy this conversation. Hafiz, how are you today? Good, Shaquille. Nice to see you. Oh, we've been working a long time to get this time set up to chat. I feel like it's been a long time. How about you? Yeah, it has been. It, it certainly feels like it, especially having a little bit more correspondence before the pandemic. It just feels a little bit more amplified. Yeah. So let me just say, first of all, how grateful I am that you managed to find the time, given kind of what you do for a living in healthcare this past year. We'll talk a little bit about what's been happening for your family this past year as, as well. But needless to say, it's a big deal that you found time to have this conversation. But let me just reflect back for our listeners just to understand a little bit of context about, about us, and then I'll connect the dots as to why this conversation is meaningful to me. We basically got to know each other on a trip to East Africa, specifically Mozambique. And we were traveling there, and you came with your partner, Azine, who was a volunteer with the organization I worked at the time. And you came on that trip as a personal investment of time and money to see the work that our foundation was doing. And that environment afforded us a really fantastic opportunity to get to know each other. It was a very meaningful experience for me. And I've got lots of stories that I continue to carry in my head that I chuckle about every so often, just out of the blue, they pop into my head. Just one real quick story, and there might be more that come up. <laughs> that is one that regularly comes up for me is we would go into these villages and we would go on tours at looking at schools and hospitals and clinics where the foundation we were working with was doing programs in these rural parts of the, uh, the world, Mozambique, Cabo Delgado, rural villages in that part of the world. And I remember one time in particular, you went missing. Actually, there were a few times you went missing. Yeah. <laughs> and one time in particular, I realized you do the headcount thing because I was leading the trip. You do the headcount thing. And I realized, okay, this person's in this car. This person's in this car. Where is the fees? And I was panicking. We were on this rural highway. <laughs> and then as I, we're driving, 
a car pulls up beside us with somebody from the Ministry of Health in Mozambique, the government person, and there you are, somehow you managed to hitch a ride with somebody in the Ministry of Health. And so luckily we were going to the same place because he was coming to the hospital where we were visiting. So that was my recollection I have of you've just found your way to just connect so meaningfully with people who you just met. And anyway, that's one recollection. And we'll talk about, I'll talk about yeah, so, that. So first, I'm so sorry for the stress I put on you. Uh, <laughs> at that time. And it seems like there were multiple events where, where I did that. But what a great trip. I, I, I remember that trip fondly. There were a lot of moments of resonance for us and for the people that we met uh, during that trip. It was uh, well worth the, the time that, that we were down there. Yeah, yeah. Well, and the reason I'm ha- really, really happy uh, to have this conversation is because after that first kind of experience together, we spent, I don't know, a week, maybe a little bit more together traveling in these unusual circumstances, having great conversations about life and the world and the future. We always had this special bond and I would regularly see you from time to time over yeah. the years, but I felt like we never really had that opportunity to have deep conversations. It was always in passing. And we continue to stay in touch, particularly through your music, particularly through life events, texting back and forth, but haven't had a chance to have a meaningful conversation. And Hafiz, I just want to say that I think you're one of the most interesting people that I know. And so I'm really excited for my listeners to get a chance to, to get to know you a little bit. And I'm really excited, selfishly for myself, to get to dive in deep for the first time in probably seven, eight years in a conversation with you. So thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you for your kindness, Shaquille. I also have been looking forward to this for similar reasons. It's just a nice opportunity for us to talk and connect. I've been really proud of the work that you're doing. The kinds of insight that you draw from people have been useful for me as well. And I'm sure useful, obviously, for your audience. But these kinds of moments to connect are little lights in our lives. Mm -hmm. And so I'm really grateful for the opportunity Mm -hmm. myself. So by now, our listeners have heard, have heard a bit of your bio at this point, but I'd like to ask you, with such diverse activities and interests, yeah. how do you define yourself? Yeah, it's a great question. I, uh, it's really hard because I've kind of had a, a kaleidoscopic upbringing, so it's really almost naturally easy for me to connect to anybody based on some shared value or some shared uh, context, but it becomes increasingly more difficult to define myself. Okay, professionally, I'm a doctor, I'm a musician, and I'm an environmentalist, but not in that order. I think I'm an artist first, not because I create art, but because I see the world as an artist does. An artist has an emotional intelligence, and that emotional intelligence imbues every moment with meaning. Mm -hmm. And so I'm heart first, always. I'm an environmentalist. I'm a trained uh, dive master. I'm particularly in love with the ocean. And I do my best to champion issues around ocean preservation and restoration. And I have a deep love for the ocean. And I'm a medical doctor. I'm an anesthesiologist. And I have subspecialization in hyperbaric and dive medicine and wound care. Above all of those things, I'm a deeply spiritual person. And I I believe in the divine dimension of the human experience. And I think that underpins everything that I do. And so to describe to you what I am, these seemingly disparate parts of my life actually are all very connected. I've been raised in so many, I was raised in Tanzania, lived in Malawi, Zambia, Yemen, the United Kingdom, Europe, and Canada, obviously. 
And so I have a connection to everybody. I kind of belong everywhere. But at the same time, Shaquille, I belong nowhere. I am very aware of how unique my experience is, but how unique everybody's experience is. And so there's a seemingly, there's a seeming disconnection, but there's also an overwhelming connection between all of us and the underlying oneness. So to say, what are you? I think I, th- I give, I, I gave it my best shot, but I really, yeah. I really don't yeah. know. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's well. In a way, it's good because I look at you and see all the diverse interests and talents, like not just interests, but talents in so many spaces. And I try to string it together and come up with the logical, the logical connection between the two. It seems like you actually haven't fully kind of figured out what the logical connection is. Yeah. It'd be very cool if by the end of this conversation. We, we, can craft, we can craft one, right? I don't know. Let's not, let's not make it a specific objective, but come up with something. That would be kind of cool. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I would be happy with that too. Yeah. So, so if you've heard some of my other episodes, you know that I really value diving into our past because I, be, I do believe that the seeds of who we are and what we do are really sown in our past and nurtured by the influences and experiences and people in our life. And so I do wonder, is there an experience, childhood, adolescence, early adulthood that stands out in your mind as something that is reflected in what you do now, what, how you conduct yourself now, whether it be as a professional, as a parent? Yeah, tell me about that. I think there are lots of moments that have helped shape me One in particular that I'd like to share is I used to live in Lusaka with my family, which is the capital of Zambia. Uh, Zambia is a very beautiful and and rich country. And at some point in history, the Zambezi River, which is between Zambia and Zimbabwe, was dammed. And they created the Kariba Lake behind it. And this was the Kariba Dam. So we went down to to Kariba as a family, as an extended family vacation. We went to a place called Lakeview Inn. And my parents and my extended family were unpacking. And my mom gave me one of her famous cucumber sandwiches to, to have as a snack. So I pulled away from everybody else and found uh, almost the bush just outside of the parking lot and climbed up a tree and sat on a really thick limb of a tree. I was probably eight or nine. Uh, and I'm sitting there just in the quiet being in nature. And I was eating this cucumber sandwich. And uh, above me, a troop of monkeys was traversing the canopy and a juvenile monkey. Like, I mean, I don't know. I don't know how, I don't know the lifespan of monkeys, but she, he was clearly a young monkey. And I'm, I'm assuming it was a boy. He saw me with my sandwich and he was trailing behind the group anyway. And so he came and he sat down on the same limb of the tree, but like several feet away from me and just looking at me and my sandwich. And so what do you do in that situation, right? You tear off a piece of your sandwich and you offer it, right? That's what I did. And amazingly, he took the sandwich. It, there was a moment of trust. And so he's sitting on this limb of a tree, still several feet away from me, but we're sitting in quiet, in pure silence. And we're just enjoying my mom's cucumber sandwich. And then his mom, I th- I'm assuming that it's his mom, came to him from the other side and, and uh, admonished him and like chitter chattered at him. And and he just looked back at me and he got a little fervent, a little anxious. And then he took off with his mom and joined the troop again. And so that moment for me, like it's burned in my memory. It's as if it had happened yesterday. It was such a profound moment because I realized for the first time that everybody has a family. Everybody has love and support. And when I say everybody, I don't mean people. I mean, generally in life. There's families, there's love, there's support. There's a commonality across species, across life. And that helped me to understand that when you approach things with openness, 
you will find a connection that you have to someone or something else. It's like that was the moment you realize that there actually is a master design, not just in the physical world, but in the perhaps the social, emotional, spiritual world. That's such a great way to put it. Yeah, a master design. There's a there's this thing called fractal geometry. I'm sure you've heard of uh, where or fractal symmetry, where you can see the same process happening, for example, in a riverbed. When you look down at a river, you can see, even in its smallest parts, the way that it breaks off and creates these little rivulets yeah. is exactly the same way a tree would look. And it, yeah. if you step further away and you took like satellite photos from a satellite, you would look down and you would see them. that same pattern exists at a larger scale, yeah. just as it does at a smaller scale. And so there is some kind of master design there, yeah. yeah. I find that so interesting because I'm not a physician like like you are a physician, so you know brain science much better than I do. But one of the things that I've come across in my shallow studies on this is that the human brain is designed to seek out patterns. It's a way of kind of making sense, organizing, reducing the, uh, oh my gosh, I'm going to say the word, chaos, and making sense of things. So that is, on one hand, a strength a power, a capability we have to identify patterns. On the other hand, sometimes those patterns can also be our debt to our detriment because it yes. leads us to assume things and take shortcuts in our thinking and not be open to the possibility of something new. And I don't know what it is about what we just talked about that led me to that, that thought. I don't know what your thought is to that. I'm not sure either, but I, I do understand where you're coming from. And certainly physicians are engaged in pattern recognition all the time. That's how we diagnose diseases based on a constellation of symptoms and a pattern of how they arise. And, and history taking, which is asking a patient how, they, how things started and, and how things developed is 80% of the diagnosis. Mm. But certainly patterns can throw you off as well. And assumptions can be made. And so it, it becomes increasingly more important to be uh, to have an empathetic approach, to be open, and to try to understand the, whoever the person is or non-person it is that you're speaking with or, or interacting with, what their context is. Because then you'll understand better what drives their behavior and what might drive some positive change. Yeah, yeah. It's, it makes life so interesting. It's a constant discovery and challenging. In fact, if I think about the times we are in, and we have been, like we call it disruption, the podcast is called Navigating Disruption. Uh, I think one of, one of the key ways to deal with disruption is to recognize that the patterns of the past don't necessarily hold true in all circumstances in the future. In fact, that's the essence of disruption. The things we've known to be true have changed. And so I do think that, that we have to have both, the ability to see the pattern and, and recognize the pattern and the ability to look beyond the pattern. So cool It's that, that you bring it up that way. You mentioned this word design too, and I, I've been thinking about design a lot. I have, I've done quite a bit of work in, in ecological design, which is like a systematic approach to design. And it's what separates us, I think, from other life is our ability to, is our ability to design. Mm. And that speaks to the, the relationship between the brain and the hand, right? Mm -hmm. Like we see something in our minds and then we can build it. It doesn't go the other way. Mm -hmm. You don't build something until you envision that you, until you envision it. And in our design, you're right. There's a, a lot of assumptions in our design. So for example, this disconnect between nature and humankind, mm -hmm. the existence of a divine aspect of who we are in our existence, 
the need for social supports. These are not things that are prominent in the way that we think about the world and how we go about our world. And so we don't design with those things in mind. We design with economic efficiency in mind. And so if we're going to see any change, we need to address those changes in the way that we conceptualize first before that reaches our hand so that we can actually Amazing. construct it. You know what I mean? Can we talk a little bit about and acknowledge the fact, and I want to say thank you, that you've given me the right to use your music in this podcast as my opening. Your song, Chaos, was... Actually, all your music is quite meaningful to me, but that song in particular seemed to fit for me kind of the theme of this podcast and the idea of managing disruption, both in our business world, in life, in society, but also for us as individuals, because sometimes everything's calm around us, but we might be in disruption as an individual. And that song spoke to me in so many ways, which is why I was really grateful that you allowed me to use it in my opening and in my closing. I know your music has evolved. You started with LNC, Late Night Conversations, and it's evolved. I'd love to talk about that a little bit. But before we do, can you share with me your inspiration for that particular song? Yeah, absolutely. I'd, I'd love to. And I'm so grateful that you're using the song. I'm proud to hear it on your podcast. And so th thank you for that, Shaquille. Chaos is literally about my inability in a particular moment to be in that moment, mm -hmm. to derive meaning in its fullest potential from a particular moment. I guess it was so obvious how much I wasn't like that in that period of time, how chaotic I was in my own heart and my own mind. And so this song was basically about my acknowledgement of the state that I was in and also an affirmation of the fact that I wanted to really derive the most from any particular moment. Mm. Wow. I mean, I had no idea that was the real story underneath it, but I can see now as I think about the lyrics and the music, I'll tell you one of the things about the song that I find particularly, it's the lyrics, yes, but it's also the movement of the music. Mm -hmm. And because it has such kind of bold moments, dramatic moments, and the image you have, I think, for the cover art is volatile waters. Yeah. And actually, that's one of the inspirations for my kind of coaching practice, because I, uh, my listeners have heard this before, but the concept that we as human beings, as individuals, oh, I just made a connection, Afiz, is that Azine, your partner, did an interview once when she was a spokesperson for the foundation. And in that, she told a story that her dad references around being the drop that creates a ripple in the water. Yeah. And that was the inspiration for kind of my coaching business. It was validated by a few other conversations I had, but that was the original impetus, right? The drop that creates a ripple. That's the logo for my coaching practice for Ocean Blue. And then over time, I evolved it and recognized that, wow, the world is in such, can be in chaos. We call it VUCA, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. If you are a leader, a person that's trying to make an impact in society, a person that wants to be the drop that creates the ripple, it's one thing to do that when the waters are calm. How do you do that when the waters are disruptive and rocky? And, and so this, that cover art of yours is basically a volatile ocean. So it resonated for me because it's the same idea that we're all here trying to make an impact on the world, but it's chaos sometimes. And how do we silence the chaos 
finding the peace, the clarity to figure out how to move forward. So anyway, that's a connection to that particular song. But I find that underlying idea of finding the quiet, reflecting on the thought is something that carries through to all your music. Yeah, it's definitely a, a running theme. The, the, my spirit, the, my spirituality, and, and my history as a Sufi mystic, which you share as well, is really prominent in the poetry of my lyrics. And late night conversations, to be fair, is a democratic process, or was. We're not we're not making music at this time, but late night conversations was a democratic process between the three of us. A lot of that is about connectivity because the way that music was created was we would find a chord progression that we liked, and we would literally play that over and over again and meditate on it until we came up with the lyrics and the, mm. the melodies, the key melodies. And it would be a, a very resonant thing that happened between the three of us. It's a very unique process, but I'm glad to hear that that's coming across when you hear it. because yeah. And I've got great feedback from some of my listeners, like people that I would never, ever imagine a person that I'd lost touch with. I worked with maybe 30 years ago in the first organization I ever worked with sent me a very long note after I added the music. Okay. He said that one, he really loved the podcast episodes and what I was trying to do with it. But he said the music is something he's never heard anything like it before. And it was so meaningful to him. I would have never imagined him as listening to this music, but it spoke to me as how unifying uh -huh, and connected, thinking about the story of the monkey, how the yeah. themes in that music and the music can connect with all sorts of people. And that's a neat reminder. Thanks for that feedback. That stuff is always great to hear. While you've been talking about the water drop and, and making ripples and how do you do that in a stormy, disruptive ocean, one of the things I've noticed when I've been diving and I'm on the surface is you'll see like these waves, these massive waves, right, that are coming. On those waves are little waves. There are these little waves. And on those little waves are even tinier waves. And it's, again, that fractal geometry where there are these tiny waves on waves on waves on waves to make this larger wave. And so I kind of am just remembering right now while we're having this conversation, you know, there's that really commonly known adage from Mahatma Gandhi that says, be the change you want to see in the mm -hmm. world, right? Mm -hmm. So you make the change in your own little wave and if it resonates with enough people, perhaps some change can be made. Yeah, that's beautiful. So speaking of the music and, and we talked about late night conversations, I've been enjoying uh, listening. You've been doing some new things in this past while, including you are doing a lot more things solo under yeah. a different name, Kayani? Yeah, yeah. Kayani, that evolution. It came out of a, a moment of disruption, late night conversations, partly to do with the pandemic, partly to do with life trajectory changes. The band wasn't really able to come together. Music wasn't as much of a priority, and it remained that way for me. Music has always been a priority for me. And so I had to continue writing, but it was not from a nice place. It was from a dark place, you know, because LNC was something that I helped create and have been really proud of what was coming out of that particular project. And now coming from this darkness, I was thinking, how do I continue? How do I move forward? And it prompted some deep reflection about who I am and what I want to express. There is really no question about whether or not to make music. I cannot exist and not make music. It's just who I am. And so... It was more about, well, what kind of music do you want to make? Mm -hmm. And it's the music that I have that's deep inside of me that there's always music inside of me. And I wanted to be, I wanted that music to be manifested in the most authentic way possible. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, as you know, an East African Indian. And I was raised when I moved here, I grew up in the Caribbean community, resonating with them a great deal. And so I, I was 
raised on reggae and R&B. And so my music is reggae and R&B heavily influenced and then it has distinct elements of my East African and Indian heritage. And the name Kayeni is a Swahili name. Kayeni means is an invitation to come and sit. Mm. Uh, it's basically come sit, be at peace with yourself, with others and with earth. And so in that, like the, the identity of who I am as a musician has crystallized from this moment of disruption in a much stronger way than ever before. And it's not like the democratic process of LNC anymore. It's very much now a, an exercise in authenticity. Mm. How do I bring to your ears mm-hmm. what I'm hearing on the inside? Mm. Wow. So basically, when I listen to your music, there's something very real underneath those lyrics for you. Yeah, they're all uh, personal moments. The new one that's come out now on July 2nd is called Saltwater Dreams. And you can probably see this running theme of water, but there's an old metaphor from Jalaluddin Rumi, who's a 13th century Sufi poet, who's quite famous in Islamic circles and non-Islamic circles. And uh, basically, he uses the analogy of a a drop of water, uh, a drop of rain that, that finds its way back to the ocean and says, we are all these little drops of rain making our way back to the ocean. And the lesson to be learned from that is there are many rivers that go to the ocean, but there's essentially just one ocean. Mm -hmm. And that essentially what what you're made of as a water drop is exactly the same as what's in the ocean. And so I use that analogy and I take it a step further to talk about the climate crisis and the crisis of urbanization Mm -hmm. and what that means for the biogeographical cycle of water as it moves from rain to the ocean. I use that as a metaphor for the the spiritual crisis that we're in as well, of how we're in a bit of a chaos ourselves trying to find our way towards some sort of sense of enlightenment, some sort of understanding of who we are and what we're here for. Wow. When you describe it that way, and I was thinking as you were describing the story of the ocean, I was feeling that I wonder if I have to be explicit for some of my listeners that when you say ocean, you mean God. And we are yeah. drops of water. I think people got it, but just in case. Yeah, yeah. Then you flipped it on me and you talked about the ocean as a representation of also the physical earth and what the earth is going through. And then you connected the dots between the two, which is really, really powerful image. Really powerful image. Thank you for, for giving me that. I don't know. Something's going to come from that kind of image you created for me afterwards as I reflect. I've actually used your music particularly during the pandemic, for meditation. Like I'll pick a song and I'll play it and I'll just take 10 minutes and just meditate with that music softly in the background. It's been really powerful. That's really profound, Shaquille. uh, That really fuels me. I really appreciate that. When I get feedback like this from people that music is a language of the emotion, it's a language of the soul, it crosses all boundaries of language and of of like verbal language. And so when music transmits this way and can transmit an emotion so authentically, it means my job was done well. And you can't imagine how much that means to me. So thank you for that. No, you're very, you're very welcome. I was in a coaching session myself with a coach a little while back. And one of the things I was working on and struggling with is there was a period in the last couple of years where I was being very creative and I was writing and is a really beautiful time in my life because I was discovering all these things and I haven't been doing as much of it in the last um, year. And I was trying to find that path back and I was struggling for it. And a coach was helping me think through it. And I realized that when I was 
writing these blogs, the thing that was fueling me was the idea that I was creating it in service of others, thinking that, oh, if I write this way, others will see the importance of connecting in their past and maybe they'll learn something. And I was getting great joy from the idea that this was going out in the world and it was going to serve somebody else. Mm -hmm. And I imagine that that's probably a little bit what it's like with you and your music a little bit, this idea yeah. that your music is going to serve somebody else. Yeah, ideally. I think there's also a selfish component to it. Is it, you know, just the same as you were writing for self-reflection. I, I create music for self-reflection first and foremost. And then there's always that hope that other people will resonate. There's an innate need for us to understand ourselves, to express ourselves, and also to connect to others. And so I think we have different media by which we do it. For me, it's yeah. music. And for you, it's writing and the process of this podcast and yeah. the work that you do with your institution. And, and so I feel like there's a real commonality in the process. It's just that yeah. the medium by which we use this is yeah, the I think that I think that's true. It's interesting the way you took that and say you use it for self-reflection and you I went down the selfish angle. So as this coaching conversation continued, I basically said that it was really fueling me. This idea of discovery and service of others was really fueling me. And then I said, but I got the ancillary benefit, which was self-reflection and discovery for myself. Yeah. And so the coach left me with this one question at the end, which was, what if instead of your own benefit, your own self-reflection being the byproduct to your service to others, what if you made the focus selfish and the benefit is to yourself primarily with yeah. the byproduct to be in service of others. And that question left my brain in knots. Yeah. I've been working on that. And it's funny because you just touched that same concept right now. In what you it's fascinating. So it's, I think it just talks about the absolute permeability between our identity and, and the identity of others, that there's this, there's an underlying co connectedness between yeah. all of us. Yeah. And the idea that uh, service to others is actually service to yourself. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's been a common theme that's come up in many of my conversations that I've, I've had is that actually service to others is an act, not of selflessness, but of selfishness. Yeah. It's such an interesting kind of holding opposites. If there are opposites at all, like in thinking back at your water drop analogy, if you're uh, a wave and you make some peace in your little spot, it certainly affects the water drops around you because you're all made of the same stuff. Yeah. And so is this selfishness, selflessness, like a self-made dichotomy that that yeah. maybe doesn't even yeah. hold true maybe. at some other levels, you know? Yeah, it's true. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> very interesting. You so give me a lot of food for thought. Let's, let's talk a little bit about influence as a leader and leadership and management during this time. One of the things that I've come across and I have an episode on it is the concept of leading where Hercules meets Buddha, where the idea that as leaders, we have to be both at the same time, we have to be courageous, provide clarity, provide direction. But at the same time, we have to be self reflective and encourage others on our teams to be self reflective, to learn to grow and be at peace at times. But other times we need to be go, 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 ambitious and hard driven. And you actually have to be both at the same time. And I wonder, as you've had to play a role, you've had a leadership role as a physician. I'd love you to tell me a little bit about the roles you've played this past year. And maybe we'll have a conversation about some of the leadership lessons we can draw from some of your experiences. So tell me about how this last year has been for you. And even it doesn't have to be this last year, it can go beyond, but what are the roles you play in leadership? 
So in the operating room as an anesthesiologist, the lead physician is generally the surgeon who's working. But if something happens, if there's a critical issue with the patient, then the leadership is turned to the anesthesiologist who runs the code, basically. And the code is trying to figure out the problem that the patient is going through and and solving the crisis in, in immediate terms. And also anesthesiologists generally run codes across the hospital when things go wrong, like a cardiac arrest or something like that. We're called upon to either to assist or take leadership in that moment. So that's one way in which I perform a leadership role. But the other is that in the hyperbaric unit, hyperbaric medicine, for for those who don't know, we put patients in these chambers and we slowly compress them to two or 2.4 atmospheres. So double or or two and a half times the pressure that you feel now when we give them 100% oxygen. It's been known to be beneficial for 14 different indications and it's covered by OHIP because the studies are pretty strong showing its benefit. And so working in that environment as the hyperbaric lead physician, you have working on your team people from different uh, disciplines, either respiratory therapists or paramedics or nurses who have extra training in hyperbaric medicine. And so you run this ship where you have a group of people who come from very different backgrounds and try to come together for the singular reason of patient care. In any of those situations as a leader, I think the thing that I've learned is number one, you set the tone. So I've seen physicians who are frantic and their teams are frantic. And I've seen physicians who are calm and who are probably frantic on the inside, but don't show it on the outside, uh, who are calm and and try to be logical and open to ideas. And I've seen team, uh, team physician leads who are punitive with their team members. And I've seen those who are really supportive of their team members and encourage uh, circular closed loop communication, et cetera, during a crisis, which we we know now is, is really effective. And so I've tried my best to learn from the leaders I've had in my medical training. Mm -hmm. And I'm using that only as the example because of the leadership discussion we're having. So I'm very cognizant and very intentional about how to create a a mood and a tone by which we handle either a crisis or an everyday operation. Mm -hmm. And at any time that there's a conflict, I will bring up again that the patient and the patient's care and safety are, are utmost and primary goal. Sometimes surgeons and anesthetists butt heads because a surgeon, for example, wants to have more intra-abdominal pressure when they're doing a laparoscopic procedure, Mm -hmm. but that puts a lot of pressure on the diaphragm and it's hard to ventilate a patient. So from the anesthesiologist side, they're saying less pressure. From a surgeon's side, they're saying more pressure. Mm -hmm. And then you realize, okay, we need to find a compromise because the patient has to be alive at the end of the day and the procedure needs to be done at the end of the day. How you set a tone is so important. That's not something you get training. Your training helps. But what it comes down to is your ability to have an empathy and openness and an ability to work interpersonally. Yeah, yeah. But in these crisis moments where somebody's life is literally on the line and it can go, it can go either way. Yeah. I expect that there are times you just have to be decisive and clear in direction. Absolutely. Absolutely. How do you reconcile the two attitudes, tones. So the first is you you assert leadership in that moment. And the good news is like when you're an anesthesiologist or the the physician in the room, they're kind of all looking at you anyway, but you set a tone and the tone is, okay, we've got a problem. I'm open to ideas. This is what I think is going on. I'd like you to start this. I'd like you to start this. Please let me know when you've done it. Uh, And you go through a protocol and that, that protocol is advanced cardiac life support. And so Anybody who works in the operating room has this protocol down pat. And so we'll put that protocol into place and we will move through that protocol as we go. 
And if there's a problem, I will turn to somebody and say, okay, it's not working. Does anybody have any ideas? Mm. And so even it does affect the outcome because if you're frantic and if you're chaotic, your team will be frantic and chaotic mm. as well. And it will affect the outcome for the patient. Mm. That doesn't generally happen a lot because I remember when I first started uh, my training in anesthesia, we had a kid who had just come out of an operation and his, for some reason, he had, he had, his saturation was dropping, his oxygen levels in his blood was dropping rapidly. And I could just hear that beep just dropping in its tone. Mm. And myself not having the training or the knowledge at that time, it was like literally my first week. I watched my, my, my preceptor, my anesthesiologist, and he just put a couple of simple interventions in place and that kid's oxygen saturation returned to normal. Mm. And I thought that's gonna take me a long time to learn. Mm. I was grateful, I learned it within a couple of weeks of how to be just calm, think through the situation and get through it. But that kind of training is ingrained in you. And so you just follow your training in that situation. You need to be decisive, but you can also be interpersonal. You can also say, thank you in a crisis to somebody and say, could you tell me when you've done that, please? And those things go a long way. Setting the tone goes a very long way. And what I'm drawing from that, and I haven't really thought about it this way before, because I do believe that particularly during times of crisis, times of disruption, there are times that people need clear direction from their leader. That's the best way to serve them. And then there's other times that clear direction actually is a disservice to them because it keeps them from exploring creatively their full potential. And yeah, the clear direction can sometimes be a crutch to not pushing yourself further and, and growing. But to me, it sounds like that there is a very important judgment to draw on that says, in this situation, when I know what needs to be done, and there's a certain consequence for the outcome that is high risk, we just need to do this. Yeah, But there are other times when I don't actually know what the next step is to do. And I shouldn't pretend because that would be a disservice to the situation and put people at risk. So that's the moment I can't hesitate. And I need to ask for help. And I need to ask for advice. And I need to ask for expertise. Does that resonate for you? 100%. That is exactly right. There's a term that we use when an anesthesiologist is called into another anesthetist's room. Yeah. So if I'm being called into another room, I will ask, do you need a brain or do you need hands? Hmm. And the idea here is, do you just need my hands to be able to get an IV or to intubate this patient or something? Or do you need my brain to help you figure out what's going on? Oh, that's a beautiful, beautiful question. Yeah. And the other thing that you said was some people need a, the room to explore. There are some people whose training is not up to par or they're having a control alt delete moment, which happens yeah. to yeah. a lot of people, to a lot of us. And in a moment of crisis, those kinds of things need to be identified and isolated. And I have had situations where a particular member of the team is just not working in the right way. And I will just quickly and decisively correct that or remove them from the situation and, and have somebody replace them. But that's part of our, that's also part of the, from a leadership perspective, I'm trying to reflect on it. It's hard to know because these things start to just pop up. And in a crisis, which is already pressure, pressure oriented, those kinds of things are small and minuscule. And if you can identify them and correct them in a kind way, then it goes a long way, as I said. Wow. A little twist here. I'm, gonna, I'm just curious. Do you remember the moment? I mean, you studied first as an environmentalist. Is that right? Yeah. Environmental studies, environmental yeah. sciences. That yeah. was your first endeavor, professional endeavor. Yeah, I was in EnviroSci with a focus on coral reefs. Right. And you actually spent a lot of time in Africa, Zanzibar in particular, 
yep. studying there in the Indian Ocean. Yeah. Was there a moment or was there a defining period when you decided to pursue medicine? Yeah. You know, it's funny you use the word moment. Everything that I've done in my life comes back to a moment. And that moment, but by being an artist, when you're in a moment, sometimes you can dip into the collective consciousness, that intuition that we all have, that this moment means something to you and you should listen to it. Uh, and so in fourth year undergrad, I had no idea, Shaquille, what I wanted to do. I had no idea. I applied to everything. I applied to teacher's college, to master's programs. And of course, I applied to medicine because the idea of helping people was interesting. I had no medical background at all. I only applied to Mac for medical school. And I did so because Mac, I think you know that Mac Medical School is a very different, it has a different approach, right? It, it basically is in the, it's in the business of training physicians, but it accepts people from all kinds of backgrounds, regardless of prerequisites, believing that that diversity is a strength and that we'll be able to mold you into a physician, even if you have no understanding of medicine from beforehand. I still came from biology and sciences, so it wasn't completely foreign, but it was different. So anyway, so in my application, I wrote about my Sufi background and my mystical background and how that underpins my, the ethical way I, in which I approach everything in, the, in that I hoped that I would do the same in medicine. And lo and behold, in my interview, there were three interviewers, but one of them was an elderly gentleman. And he pointed that out. He says, you know, you mentioned Sufism. He's like, I'm a fan of Jalal al-Din Rumi. And he's, he was not uh, from the Eastern world. He's a North American. And he said, can you explain to me the connectedness between Sufi theology and McMaster's philosophy. And so I said, well, Sufism is grounded in an Islamic context, but it is open and acceptant, accepting and actually integrates other ideas into its own philosophy in the endeavor to find the ultimate truth. And so I said, Mac's not that different. It's training physicians, but it is accepting of people from very different angles. And there was something in that moment, there was a resonance in that moment I left that room knowing I was going to be a doctor before I even got my acceptance. Mm. So yeah, there are moments like that mm. where, you, where you just know that this is the path you're going to take. I wonder if there's a little clue there on the connectedness between all of the fields of endeavor that you've gone down. I think of what you talked about is the power of music, your ability to express yourself and self-reflect. I think of your view on nature and we talked about the drops and leading to the ocean from just a physical nature perspective, and then the faith connection, and then medicine and helping people and leading people. I just, I feel there's a connection. It's coming through. I just don't know what the exact words of it are, but there's definitely a, a connectivity to you, to faith and God in God's sense, but also God in its representations in the individual's and the human beings around us and God's representation in the earth and the animals around us and the, the nature around us and God's presence in our own self-discovery and, and reflection. I, I'm definitely feeling that from you. Definitely. All three of them are connected in, in a couple of ways. One is that they're, they all require an incomplete surrender. In music, in, the, in any creative process, you need to get yourself out of the way. If you're too cerebral about something, you're not going to be creating anything useful. It has to appeal at an emotional level, at a very visceral level. So there's a surrender there. Then there's a, in diving, there's an entire surrender. You're surrendering literally to the weight of the ocean on top of you, knowing that mother nature could take your life in a second, yeah, yeah. 
But at the same time today, she might gift you. She might gift you with like you witnessing a little fish building its home in a coral reef or the last dive I was on was with an 18 foot manta ray and we were eye to eye in the middle of the blue. And you could see the intelligence in that creature's eyes, the the kindness and grace there. Or the complete surrender. I can't articulate to you what it's like to have someone's life in your hands as in medicine, but there, for all the technical expertise, there is a surrender to a higher power, mm-hmm. to a vulnerability that, you know, things could go wrong and somehow things don't most of the time. And then inside of that surrender is a very systematic, holistic, and thorough approach to developing a skill. Whether it's the musical instrument, whether it's going from a recreational diver to a dive master to a scientific diver, or whether it's the rigorous study of medicine. Mm. And so each each of them requires surrender, each of them requires discipline, each of them requires some self-reflection and awareness of your role in a larger picture. Mm-hmm. I think that's how they're connected. Yeah. And I think when you say that, and now I reflect on kind of what I'm doing, trying to work with leaders and making leaders stronger is there's very much a similar connection. You know, as we prepare to support people in their leadership, we talk a lot about the role of spending time in nature Interesting. and meditative questions while you are in nature and specifically choosing to do it in nature in some form or fashion. Wow. We talk talk a lot about the role of journaling and self-reflection and expression through words. And and some of my clients will do it through poetry. And we talk a lot about recognizing those moments where you need to be strong and clear in direction. But in order to do that, you have to be very much connected and at peace with who you are. And those moments where you have to be empathetic, nurturing, and in those cases, you have to be really clear on your connectedness with other human beings. And I'm seeing such a parallel to everything we just talked about in your world and these diverse spheres and what we need to be as leaders right now. I'm delighted to hear this. I'm genuinely delighted to hear that you're actively engaging in this process. There's a a famous ecologist. He's not alive anymore, I don't think. His name is uh, Edgar O. Wilson, and he had this thing called the biophilia hypothesis. Hmm. Uh, And the idea behind it is that when you're young and you're spending a lot of time in nature, it, it cultivates an emotional intelligence. It gives you an understanding of the larger world and your role in it, helps you understand the cycles of the season of life and death. And it gives you an emotional maturity that, uh, that grounds you uh, and gives you a sense of uh, purpose and a sense of a role. Mm-hmm. And so when you say what you're saying about this exercise of meditating in a natural environment, it speaks to that innate need of the human being to interact with non-human life, mm-hmm. to understand it's his or her or her his role in the larger scheme of things. And the end goal is to develop this emotional intelligence and awareness. I'm delighted to hear that. That's, yeah. I wish more yeah. people were doing that. Well, as I've discovered it, it's just really, it's been really incredible as I've learned this from some of the best uh, teachers in these spheres. It's been really, really powerful for me. Our time is drawing to a close, but I did want to take a moment here. There's two things I want to uh, touch on. The first is you've got a beautiful family and I know you've had a really challenging year. We've all had a really challenging year. I knew you and your family did get COVID, but I also know you had some amazing celebratory moments this year by the growth of your family and your beautiful new baby. Can you tell us a little bit about your year and what it was like for you? 
Yeah. Well, we've been working through the year pretty solid. We have been blessed with a... So I have a girl. Her, her name's Ellie. She's two years old. And she was born in 2019. So year and a bit before the pandemic. And then Aria just came to us on Valentine's Day this year, 2021. He's a boy. And his name is Aria Iman, which is like noble and faithful. And he's four months old now and he's become, he's become quite interactive. And I still find it really strange that I have two kids yeah. Uh, Shaquille, I've kind of been a, a traveler and a restless soul in a lot of ways. And, and these two kids are such an amazing blessing, but I don't feel like they're my children. I feel like they're these two souls that have come into my life to join me on this journey and for me to cultivate their own growth. And they've been entrusted to me that I might let them embark on their own journeys in, in the best equipped way possible. And so it's bewildering and exciting and also <laughs> confusing it's yeah sure. you have two kids and I'm, I'm so much more appreciative of parents uh, i know you, one of your children just graduated yeah. one of your boys just graduated so congratulations on that and that accomplishment uh, means so much more now that i have two kids under two knowing what needs to go into that kind of accomplishment so congratulations to you and your family thank you, thank you. and congratulations to you and i love what you just said there so profound and i want to sit there for a moment is that we call them our children yeah but we don't own them no, no, no. They are a gift from God to us, but they're also a responsibility given to us from God to, we're giving you these two souls, look after them for me, allow them to become who they are, who I've supplanted in them to be, but let them grow and let them figure their thing out. And I'm trusting you. I'm trusting you with this responsibility. And I love the way you said that at the end there, because that lands well with me. And in moments like graduations, I do spend some time moving back and forth between, did we do that? Or did it happen? And did we just get to witness it and be around it? Yeah. And that's the story of parenting. You don't actually know all the answers. And sometimes no. you're just going along for the ride. Yeah. Is it, what's the line? Because I wrote a song recently about, called Mother's Milk. Uh, yes. Was- beautiful song. Thank you. And it was about the fact that Azim, my partner, is just an incredible woman. But women in general are so fascinating. Their bodies actually make milk for babies. Like it's it's so incredible. And I was I was thinking about that moment. And I was like, life doesn't come with a manual, as the saying goes. It comes with moms. Yeah, Yeah, it's true. (laughs) We don't have any training that we get as parents, right? And so moms come already encoded. Yeah, with kind of the rules and procedures and ways to get through things. And I've actually witnessed in Azina a really beautiful transformation and an inspiration for me to be more patient. And she's just such an incredible human being as it is. And then, yeah. and now she's taken on this role as a mother and does it like everything else she does with just impeccable performance. And I have learned so much from it, uh, especially when my two-year-old, if I ask her not to do something, she does it while looking me square in the eye. Yeah. I-, I learned from Azina in moments like that. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> I have the privilege of knowing exactly what you're talking about because I did have the opportunity to, to actually work with Azine professionally and I know exactly what you're talking about. And I'll say it again. I've said it to you in other circumstances. Two of you to, together are so interesting, so caring about the world, so deep, so reflective. And I'm just grateful to have you both in my life. As we come to a close, I want other people to know you better. And I want to ask you to just tell us what is the best way for them to find you, find your music, the most straightforward way. Please do share. Thank you. So at Kayani Music, Kayani is K-A-E-N-I and it's kayanimusic.com or at Kayani Music on IG or on Facebook. 
Thank you, Shaquille. The feeling is mutual. We have a deep love for you and your family. And thank you so much for this opportunity. Thank you and have a wonderful, wonderful day. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. Coming into the conversation, I expected to learn more about Hafiz's connections between his diverse fields of interest. And I definitely got that. But I also took away something more valuable. And that is what I will share with you here. They can be summarized in four words. Connection, creativity, tone, and surrender. And they all relate to how these ideas can lead us to becoming stronger leaders during times of disruption. First, the word connection. Hafiz talked about how he has seen connections throughout his life, and he's embraced what on the surface seems like unlikely connections to develop himself as a person, as a leader, and as a creator. We talked about connections between species and how relationships within one species can teach us about relationships between ourselves and other people. And that trying to understand and seek insight from those connections between us as individuals and other creatures, human and non-human, and creations can be the source of tremendous insight. The second word, creativity. His practice of creativity manifests in his poetry, lyrics, and music and then even in his work with people. He describes this as his personal way of reflecting, learning, and finding his path to being more mindful and quietening the chaos to live in the moment. He does that through his creation of music, song, poetry. So this suggests to me that whatever your practice might be, it is critical to find moments of personal creativity to spark your personal discovery, and become more effective as a leader. The third theme is described by the word tone, T-O-N-E. And this is relatively straightforward. He just acknowledged that leaders in any job, in any situation, their role is to set the tone. Whether a situation is routine, calm, or predictable, or it's tense, frightening, and uncertain. The leader sets the tone for behavior. If the leader is open, honest, and vulnerable, the team will pick up on that and bring the best of themselves. If the leader is frantic, anxious, and rude, this is what they will bring out in others. And then the individuals being served, the whole purpose of the team will suffer. Finally, the word surrender. When you accept the fact there is so much in every situation, whether it be in nature, in work, in relationships, and in countless other spheres of living. When you accept the fact that there's very little you control and you surrender to the greater forces, you can then find your small place of influence. And then you can draw on your talents, your strengths, your capabilities, and human faculties to make the greatest impact possible using that influence. I hope you enjoyed that conversation and have a great day. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, or share it. I want to say thank you to one of my favorite bands, Late Night Conversations, for sharing their song Chaos with me and letting me use it in this episode. You can learn more about them on Instagram at LNC Connected. And here's more of their song Chaos to take you out. behind my eyes Media
Suffocation, suffocation, it'll break me. Information in the sky. Stationary animation taking me 